Right, how you guys doing? Um, it's sundown, and I'm just there. I'm a magic touch producer. Thank you for 57k on this podcast where we are hot on the trail of Trump going to jail. Yeah. Anyway, shout out to KAMP Student Radio at the University of Arizona. Hey, KBYT, Patriarchy, Travel Radio, Travel Radio, Travel Radio. I'm the Riz with just a show, travel radio, travel radio. Welcome back. And uh, let's check out this Kevin McCarthy sex scandal. Don't buy solar panels. Seriously. Well, I think there's she is a uh, she saying this. If you is, think about uh, buying solar panels, so folks, I'm happy Green. to let you know that the Shocker. bad times keep on rolling for the Spino, for the speaker <laughs> name only. Kevin McCarthy continues Spino. to lose. And today of all days is terrible for him for three reasons in particular. And they all come back to his main challenge that he made all of these deals with the devils to get that gavel to get the power he now has that he's dreamed of having for decades if not longer and it's all coming crashing down on him at record pace and this is connected to the fact that not only are the politics failing him but he continues to be dragged down and taken down by his connections to George Santos who just made a move that's going to hurt Kevin McCarthy, as well as, guys, a disgusting scandal based on a lot of discussion from right-wing sources that will ruin Kevin McCarthy's marriage in a pretty epic way. Uh Let's start the politics, however, because it's here where the most public concern is. That Kevin McCarthy, one of his arguments was, is I could build a governing coalition and rein in the crazies, and that's not happening. And as a result, he's losing Uh everything. You might call this the Godfather meets Washington. Instead of five warring mob families, it's a group of Republican lawmakers from across their caucus's political spectrum trying to avoid a catastrophic debt default. CNN reports the talks between the so-called five families and the House Republican leadership are in their early stages. The goal? Some sort of consensus on the debt limit. What the lawmakers and the leadership hope is that they can force Democrats to back off their calls to raise the debt ceiling with no spending cuts. CNN's Eva McKen and Melanie Sonona join our conversation. So, Kevin McCarthy, not afraid of the Godfather reference, <laughs> I guess, calls the five you know, yeah. disparate groups within yeah. the Republican family the five families. And the idea is, this is hard. If you want to propose spending cuts in conjunction with the debt limit, that means you've got to put them on paper. Uh, right. So you're trying to get the most conservative members to agree with the more moderate members and? So the strategy here for Kevin McCarthy is really twofold. He wants to first show that Republicans can get 218 votes for any spending plan because one of the chief criticisms of Republicans has been they can't negotiate amongst themselves. They could barely elect Kevin McCarthy as speaker, let, let alone be negotiating with the White House here. So they're trying to strengthen their negotiating hand by showing, hey, we do have a plan. We can come to agreement and we can do this. And the second part of the strategy for Kevin McCarthy is he wants to have an inclusive process with these so-called five families, uh, a godfather reference there that I will say not all Republicans love that reference. Uh, But 
McCarthy wants to show that it's not just going to be leadership driven. And that's because he knows that this is going to be a make or break moment for his speakership. There is the power to oust him at any given moment. So he is trying to sort of thread the needle here amongst the various wings of his party. But it's going to be a lot easier said than done. And then if and when they come to that agreement, they still have to negotiate with the Democrats. And so let's just let's just go. You see them up up on the screen there. Yeah, Garrett Graves is a top McCarthy ally. I call him the leadership family. He's representing uh, the leadership in there. Dusty Johnson uh, is the chairman of what they call the Main Street Caucus. Patrick McHenry, the Financial Services Committee chairman. David Joyce, Republican Governors Group. Uh, Scott Perry, the Freedom Caucus. They tend to be the more conservative members. Uh, so far in this piece, Eva, uh, this is Dusty Johnson. There's a level of trust and engagement within the five families that I've not seen in the previous four years. We're working really well together. Uh, Ralph Norman of South Carolina, among those who was not going to vote for Kevin McCarthy back in the beginning, who ultimately did, we're trying to get to the framework. We all want buy-in. There's a sense in us, the group putting something out, another group put something out. They don't want that. They don't want to have, you know, you propose this, she proposes that. The question is, you can start a conversation. Can you get to the finish line? Right. I would expect optimism from some of those key negotiators there. And ultimately, Speaker McCarthy is speaking to a concern that was voiced by Republicans, that power needed to be decentralized, that everyone should have a role in these key negotiations. But the problem for Republicans is going to be a landing on what exactly these cuts will be. This is a party that has, I think, like, like to branded themse brand themselves on austerity. But then when you get to the nitty gritty um, and actually naming the programs, we just have not seen, I think, a political, political willingness to go that far. And Republicans get a lot more fiscally conservative when there's a Democratic president. Just So it notes there that Kevin McCarthy is basically trapped. Like, he can't get a deal done with the Democrats. Like, if he gets a deal done, he will lose the MAGA part, the crazy part of his caucus, who will revolt against him. And remember, they don't have that many votes to spare. He can only really lose, like, four, five, six votes, whatever it is. If a dozen or so Republicans get mad at him for passing a debt ceiling bill that's not doesn't contain enough cuts, or some of them have said, no matter what, they won't support raising the debt ceiling. And if Kevin McCarthy makes a deal, yeah, he'll be able to maybe get moderate Democrats and the Democrats on side, and I'll have enough votes to pass that, but he'll lose the speakership in the process. Yet, by going with his own party, he almost guarantees a package that is, one, never going to get past the Senate, never going to get past the president and all of that, but critically will likely contain cuts that are deeply unpopular with the average person, and frankly, even a lot of Republican voters. There's a reason why McCarthy has been so furious that some Republicans, not all, but some Republicans have talked about cutting Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid and all of that. And it's not because Kevin McCarthy believes in those programs. Ideologically, he wants the poor to suffer, and he would cut those programs to give tax cuts to his buddies in a second if he felt politically it wasn't disastrous, but that's where they're at. And this continues with Santos. There's a couple clips here from top Democrats linking the general failures of the Republican Party and McCarthy to Santos and his failure to hold him to account. And Santos ain't doing McCarthy any favors. So he just shows no remorse. The fact that he was shamelessly berating himself on the aisle during the State of the Union in a pitiful attempt to shake the president's hand tells you everything you need to know about George Santos. He has no shame. He has no remorse. He has no regret for all the lies that he's told and all the laws he's broken. You cannot redeem the irredeemable.
What do you make of how Kevin McCarthy has handled this situation and his continued inaction, basically hiding behind the Ethics Committee, saying, you know, everything will be dealt with once the Ethics Committee deals with George Santos and concludes their investigation? Well, first, Speaker Kevin McCarthy knows full well that the House Republican majority under his leadership defunded the Office of Congressional Ethics. And the ethics system in Congress is so broken that he knows that it would languish indefinitely, uh, allowing George Santos to escape accountability. So we cannot wait indefinitely. We have to hold George Santos accountable now. But Kevin McCarthy's actions are driven more by politics rather than ethics. Kevin McCarthy needs every vote that he can get. And he needs George Santos to remain in power. And so how can Republicans claim that they're committed to cleaning the swamp when they're protecting George Santos, arguably the most corrupt member of Congress, from even the barest forms of accountability? Was the fact that you were blocked by Kevin McCarthy from serving on the House Intelligence Committee a factor in you deciding to run for Senate? Uh, no, I had made the decision uh, before that, uh, although I do think that Kevin McCarthy uh, gave me another powerful reason for Californians to vote for me, and that is they can make Adam Schiff Kevin McCarthy's home state senator. Um, but uh, my motivation was much deeper than, than Kevin McCarthy, uh, and it's the fact that our democracy remains deeply at risk uh, from the kind of extreme uh, MAGA Republicans that Kevin McCarthy, Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, Paul Gosar uh, and these others represent. Uh, and I think, Lawrence, you're exactly right. A big part of the problem is that the, the GOP under Donald Trump has uh, essentially forsaken the truth. Uh, George Santos, in that respect, I think is a prime example, really, uh, of the, the, the truthlessness of today's Republican Party. Uh, but to protect our democracy, I think it's also essential that we strengthen our economy. I've always felt, uh, as I know you and I have discussed, that part of the reason we have been susceptible to a demagogue is that for millions of Americans, the economy simply isn't working. They're working harder than ever. Uh, some can't keep a roof over their head. Others can't provide for their family or they see their quality of life as less than that of their parents. Uh, and it leaves them vulnerable to a demagogue who comes along and says that he alone can fix it. Um, these are the fights I've taken on in the House. Uh, I'd be proud to take them on in the Senate. Uh, and for those who want to donate or join the campaign, they can go to adamschiff.com. So you can see, right, like the, both of these clips, whether it's Schiff talking about how he's been singled out or whether it's Torres talking about his motion to expel, both of them have made it clear. Santos and McCarthy are linked. You know, both of these guys are linked politically. And as Dan Goldman and so many others have noted, there's a complicity among McCarthy. So I feel like if Santos gets arrested, the Spino shouldn't be too far behind. But let's also be clear that, you know, Santos isn't doing him any favors. Part of the thing that McCarthy wanted was for Santos to just hide away and shut up and be quiet. And frankly, at this point, I know he doesn't want to lose the vote, but McCarthy probably does want Santos out of Congress, at least eventually. But Santos just tweeted the following, saying that, you know, the, the, the calls for me to be silent and go away aren't going to work. And it says here, just to be very clear, I'm not leaving, I'm not hiding, and I am not backing down. I will continue to work for NYO and no matter uh, no amount of Twitter trolling will stop me. I'm looking forward to getting what needs to be done done. And so he's saying F you to McCarthy and everybody that's telling him to just go away and be quiet and that uh, you will create more scandals. And this connects guys also 
to the growing rumors, and these are growing rumors, of a sex scandal, let's be honest, between uh, McCarthy and Marjorie Taylor Greene. Now, these are rumors, but the thing about a scandal is a scandal can be a scandal even when it's just based on rumor and conjecture. It's a bigger scandal, of course, if there's proof, but, you know, all of these sources, including right-wing sources like this one, are saying, are asking the question, and are citing sources that an affair is happening. If you check social media, everyone is saying it's happening, and it explains the rational, the irrational loyalty that McCarthy has been showing Marjorie Taylor Greene. And we we have to be clear that this is connected to something from a few years ago. We've talked about this before, but the reason McCarthy, some say, didn't get the speakership back in 2016, even though he was ahead of the line over Paul Ryan, at least theoretically, was scandal broke where he was allegedly sleeping with another Republican member of Congress. And when that broke and when he was informed of that scandal, he all of a sudden withdrew his name from Speaker, and the rest is history, and he wasn't able to become Speaker at that time. And so this scandal is big, and it's also tearing apart MAGA, because you've seen many right-wingers. I don't want to play the clips because they're vile, and I don't want to give them the exposure, but all of these right-wing sources saying that McCarthy and Green are sleeping together as a way of attacking them and their perceived betrayal of like the MAGA-first, America-first really agenda. All of this is devastating for him. Whether the rumors are true or not, the fundamental fact is he's got nothing right now. His own party, he can't control oh, them. God. He can't control the realities <laughs> that the American people hate his policies. And PJ he can't control the from... realities that legal oh, trouble has come for him too. Toe. <laughs> But that's what you got. So what a waste of time. Forbidden knowledge and secrets of ancient history. Billy Carson, Matthew Lacroix, three years ago. What? Why is this live? Forbidden knowledge and secrets of ancient history. Let's hear something mind blowing. Matthew LaCroix here. I'm joined by Billy Carson for an epic mastermind discussion and presentation on civilizations, human origins, and forbidden knowledge. So today we're going to be doing something special where Billy and I are going to be dual reading the Enuma Elish and the Emerald Tablets so we can understand these secrets of the past. Billy, what have you been up to and how are you, my friend? Oh, first of all, thanks for having me back on. It's been a long time since we've done this. And I'm really excited about it. I was really looking forward to it, and I'm glad everything worked out <clears throat> with the weather so that we can make this connection. Um, you know, since we last uh, did a video, I've been Outlining. all over the world. I've probably been around the world twice now <clears throat> in the last uh, two years. Uh, it's just been amazing. Mr. I mean, everywhere from Cambodia, Hong Kong, uh, South Korea, <laughs> Vietnam. Uh, you know, uh, I've been to Accra Tiri in Greece to go to an ancient dig site. Um, you know, I've been, I've just been about everywhere, Peru, the Nazca Lines, uh, Machu Picchu, um, the Sacred Valley, <clears throat> all into Tumbo, Saxuoma. I mean, you, I just keep going on and on. I've been to a lot of places, and what's happened is I've really 
uh, you know, dug into the field research kind of firsthand uh, and went and talked to a lot of homegrown archaeologists, a lot of um, uh, homegrown researchers that have grown up in the area so that I can get a little bit of information about what's really gone on in the ancient past, what they think happened. <clears throat> and it always comes to the same thing. A lot of people are always saying the people that live there, grew up there, know the traditions, always say the same thing, that these weren't built by us, they were built by the guards. And it's really amazing. I mean, you know, um, so it's just been an amazing journey, man. And I'm so happy to be able to even, um, you know, get write the book, put the book out. It's doing phenomenal. Your book is phenomenal right here, uh, The Stage of Time. I really appreciate this book, man. I just started digging into it. And it's so amazing how similar you know, our points of view are and everything and, and reference to the ancient past and ancient history and the amount of, re I respect you for the amount of research that you've done to, people don't realize what it takes to be able to put this kind of information out in Congress, and this level of quality. You really have to be a student of, of mysteries and a student Security of, of the uh, ancient committee. history. So I Go appreciate it. Thank you. So really hey, Billy, it's an honor. I, I really, um, it's an amazing to hear those kind words from you, especially coming from someone of, of your um, importance you know, I'm, it really is an honor. I have not had a chance to travel quite as much as Billy. I'm say I'm jealous is an understatement, I think. Um, but hopefully someday I can get there. Okay, Billy and I are going to jump in now into some slides and we're going to review some evidence in chronological order. And we're going to start by trying to understand where human civilizations came from. You know, a lot of times I meet people who they're sitting down, they're pondering outside and they're wondering, you know, where do we come from? Where do human civilizations come from? Where does knowledge, mathematics, laws, where do all where does all that stuff come from? And they and they honestly like asking that question because they don't know. And of course, if you go and you go through the um, the education system we have in school, you you're taught that human civilization is six thousand years old or less, and that everything developed in Mesopotamia, which is true, except for the age is wrong and where it came from is wrong. And what I mean by wrong, that's a, I know that's a pretty um, blunt statement, but we have evidence that tells us where it came from. So we don't have to guess anymore. So many people aren't aware of this information. I think that's one of the things that, that we're trying to correct now. And, and Billy and I doing this work is that we're trying to point out and say, hey, look, we have evidence that directly tells us where all these, th these things came from, tells us who we really are, tells us this lost history. And we're now at the point where we're trying to put those pieces together to understand it. And so what, what I'm showing on the screen right now, this is what is known as Eridu. Now, if you wanted to try to find out, you, if you ask yourself, well, what is the evidence that tells us where any of this stuff came from? What, what is, where is it and where does it come from? Because I, I, don't, I don't really believe this stuff. So, some of this information seems way too far-fetched. You know, it really goes against Midas, this doctrine we're told. So Midas provide us some concrete evidence. Well, that evidence comes from four places. And Billy can chime in as we're going here and we discuss it. And I've, I've categorized four cuneiform tablets that provide concrete evidence for all of those questions that I just asked. And those four tablets are the Eridu Genesis, the Sumerian King List, the Code of Hammurabi, and the Legend of Atanya. In each of those cuneiform tablets, it specifically describes where all of those moral laws and codes and mathematics and astronomy, it tells where all that, that stuff came from. And on top of that, the Sumerians clearly state that in, in many other places as well, including cylinder seals where they show that, okay? And so I wanna just provide you a quick little quote, and Billy is gonna be very familiar with this, that 
that is the opening line of the Sumerian king list, okay? And what it says is, when kingship was lowered from heaven, kingship was an Eridu. Right, Billy? Absolutely, and that's huge because that gives us an idea of where the very first city was here on earth uh, and uh, where, they, where these kings or these gods, quote unquote, kind of kick-started civilization here. Uh, I really think it was like a breakaway civilization from their planet to here. And, and that's one of the, that's one of these great mysteries that still remains is, you know, where if, if all this knowledge was handed down and given, first, the first question, of course, is where did it come from and who provided it? Right. And those and those questions then lead to asking even more questions that go deeper and deeper down this rabbit hole, trying to figure out where where the origins of everything come from. Now, I wanted to I wanted to point out something is that some people have looked at the Sumerian king list and they've said, OK. That stuff seems sounds like a fairy tale. It just can't be real. Well, the way that you can can know that something like the Sumerian king list is authentic is to then compare the information that's that's discussed in it with another cuneiform tablet. And I want to mention that, I've, and I've mentioned this before in other shows. Latest some of these tablets came from completely Tony different Michael's locations, podcast. sometimes hundreds of miles away. So to have information be be carried over shows you that number one, that information is probably true, and number two, it's it's most likely come from a civilization that was connected. And so where that comes from, that, that we can find that same information, is the Eridu Genesis. And that is one of these cuneiform tablets that I think is largely unknown and, and, and is discussed very little. And I have the full translations from, including the Eridu Genesis in, in the stage of time, because that's how important this is, in my opinion. So what the Eridu Genesis states, I'm just going to read the first two paragraphs, because again, I want you to notice those terms. The terms I want you to look for are when you read the Sumerian king list, it mentions these certain cities in chronological order that were founded. Okay. It says Eridu was the first city on earth. Then it says that Bad Tabira was the second city, followed by Larak, Sippar, and then finally Sharupak. Now, it's, what's important to understand about that is that Sharupak is mentioned in these tablets as being the last city in Mesopotamia before it was all destroyed and everything had to start over again, okay? So what the Eridu Genesis says is it starts by saying, when the royal scepter was coming down from heaven, the August crown and the royal throne being already down from heaven, the king regularly performed to perfection the August divine services and offices and laid the bricks of those cities in pure spots. The firstling of the cities, Eridu, she gave to the leader, Nudamud. The second, Bad Tabira, she gave to the prince and the sacred one. The third, Larak, she gave to Palisag. The fourth, Sippar, she gave to the gallant Utu. The fifth, Sharupak, she gave to Ansud. So not only does it, it's not like it mentions one of those cities or another one of those cities every single one is exactly mentioned in the order that the sumerian king list sets mm -hmm. now and i want billy to chime in after this what's important about that is if you add up the dates given for what they call shars when they listed out the reigns of these kings that ruled these cities you get a history that would go back 200,000 years ago and yeah. i know that would throw a wrench in everything we've ever been taught especially when you look at how we're told in school that human civilization is less than 6,000 years old. So basically, Billy, this paints an entirely different picture about our past, doesn't it? Uh, this is incredible because it shatters all religious systems literally in one second. 
And uh, this is why this information is not taught in schools, because obviously the religious systems are a multi-trillion dollar industry and they can't have people uh, just going into this ancient information and learning it and bypassing that system. But um, this is really earth-shedding information, the fact that you can discover this information on two different stone tablets. And one thing I really want to point out, not the fact that they're so far apart, but, but the fact that somebody took the time to etch these into clay with a cuneiform stylus. I don't know if anybody's ever watched it being done, but I have. Uh, at the, there's a professor, you know, at the uh, Cambridge uh, Library, clever, uh, and he does these. Because uh, it does a YouTube say, channel. You know, clay is everywhere. Just getting moist, and then you can you can write in it, and then if it's super important, you can get it. Uh, yeah. Oh. Um. What do you call it? Uh, I want to say bisked. Uh, yeah, like fired in a kiln. Shows you how to do it. And let me tell you something. At the British Museum, there's also uh, Mr. Finkel, who does it as well. Does an excellent job showing how to do the cuneiform. He writes some cuneiform into some wet clay. It's such a tedious process. So you're thinking tens of thousands of years ago, somebody's got to sit down, get the clay out, <laughs> get a stylus out, and take so many hours upon hours to create this information and then bake it and so forth so it can stand within the test of time. They didn't have time to do this for fun. This wasn't just like, I'm going to sit down and make a whole cuneiform tablet today just for the heck of it and make up some information. <laughs> they really put down important uh, information into these tablets, things they thought would be prudent for future generations to see. Exactly. And, and it's not even just that they wanted, you know, these specific stories to be known because oh, this was just an event that occurred. They were so smart that these stories that they created were written in such a way that it's like this perfect harmonic rhythm to them. And, mm -hmm. it, and it, at the same time, while they describe both actual events that occurred in the past and this important symbolism and all these metaphors and these lessons that we can learn along the way, but they provide in a complete glimpse in this lost viewpoint into where human origins came from and where it all began in the very, in the, in the very first place. I mean, try to imagine over 50,000 years ago, Pop just try to imagine, years. I mean, think of everything that human civilization has accomplished in the last 500 years. Mm -hmm. Now try to imagine more than 50,000 years ago, these civilizations that are all being handed this information and they're rising up and agriculture is blossoming all around the planet. And you're seeing this emergence of human civilization that's spreading out around the planet. And then what happens? Well, it reaches a certain, certain sophistication and then it's wiped out and destroyed. And then human civilization has to rebuild itself again. Now, when I mentioned those four tablets that are, that, that I said are crucial, I didn't read any, anything from the last two that I mentioned, but I want to bring it up. How do you know that these events occurred? Like, how do we know these, what I just mentioned, Eridu and, and Sharupak, how do we know those cities were from that far ago, right? How do we know how old they are? How do we know how to accurately create this timeline? You basically have to look at evidence from a large spectrum of, of, of um, our area to, to understand. And the mm -hmm. first thing you want to look at is you compare things like geologic evidence you get from around the world, looking at, oh my God, the landscape was disastrously scarred by these events that occurred last ice age. And then you look at things like ice core samples and you can pinpoint when these different climatic zones occurred. And then you can take 
these ancient cuneiform stories and then match them up based on the events they describe and how old they say they are. So when the Sumerian king list and, um, and, the, and the Eridu Genesis talk about these ancient cities. You, oh, shit. I accidentally closed it. Damn. Just, uh... um, and, the, and the Eridu Genesis talk about these ancient cities. You, people that are then going to say, well, well, how do we distinguish what's before and what's after? Here's where really paying attention to this stuff comes in that comes in important. When you look at something like the legend of Atanya, and here's yet again, another one of these incredibly important tablets that I hear almost nobody talk about. Okay. And that is remarkable because the legend of Atanya is the only tablet that talks about the events that occurred right after the flood. It specifically mentions that there was a city in Mesopotamia that was then created, the first one of all. So you could call Eridu the first city in human civilization ever, according to these records. Then the first city after everything was destroyed was called Kish. And Kish is what was known as these post-Diluvian um, civilizations, okay? And that's, that means that everything we know of, when we think of um, all these things handed, re-handed down and then civilization restarting in Mesopotamia like we're told in school, that's all part of this post-Diluvian history. This is all part of this new epic that occurred with this restarting of human civilization over again. And that's mm -hmm. why these time periods are so confused, wouldn't you say, Billy? Yep, absolutely. I mean, it's so, it gets a little convoluted, so you really got to pay attention. And I'm glad you brought up the ice cores. Um, you know, there's a show by Greg Braden, the famous Greg Braden, a uh, great guy. Uh, I had the pleasure of meeting him and being in some episodes with him on a few shows. He's on a show called Missing Links. Uh, it's on Gaia. But he talks about the, the, that entire first episode and season one is all about the ice core samples. Digging into the ice cores, matching it up, like you just said, to ancient history and events, global events that have happened, and you get the record stored in the ice core. You can detect when we've had global warming in the past, and then you begin to see this cycle that it happens every so many thousands of years. You begin to see the cycle of every so many thousands of years, you get an ice age. You begin to see the cycle of every so many thousands of years, you get some type of a geological disaster that happens on the planet. You can see the different oxygen levels, different atmospheric gases of the plant life. All that information is in the ice core. So, I mean, literally, when you study these ice cores, you can now then predict the future of the planet. And to be honest with you, a lot of people are really getting worried about the global warming and everything else. We're right on track with the ice core said we were going to be exactly right now. This is not something, to be honest with you, out of the ordinary. It's actually something that's part of our cyclical, cyclical nature of this um, geological pattern on this planet uh, and but what the amazing thing is those ice cores line up with these ancient tablets which is why I talk about the fact that I really believe that the Great Sphinx and the Great Pyramid are, are probably about 36,000 years old because if you go back two additional processional periods to match up the the uh, the Sphinx with the constellation of Leo you end up around 36,000 years ago when according to the ice cores and according to the animal tablets it's the perfect time to build the Giza Plateau to build the Great Pyramid so it kind of really gives you, it helps you paint a, a, a good picture about what's going on. And the other thing is, like you said, finding these tablets all around the world, Chief Joseph, which was a Native American Indian that was unburied in North America, was unburied from a, a, a burial tomb in North America and what was in his pocket, a Sumerian tablet written in cuneiform text. So the Sumerians had contact with Native American, indigenous Native Americans 
thousands of years ago in the North Americas, proving again that they had traveled the entire globe. They also found in, uh, in Mesoamerica, Sumerian uh, writing, which they call Proto-Sumerian, but that's even on Wikipedia, I mean, anybody can look it up. They even had a metric system back then. So when I tell people about you know, the fact that the Grand Gallery in the Great Pyramid is the longitude of the numbers match the speed of light in five meters per second, well, people go, oh no, we didn't have meters back then. Oh yes, we did. <laughs> they had meters thousands of years ago. Everything we have now is just a rediscovery. Exactly, that's really well said. And we're going to be getting into some of those some of those pieces of evidence from other parts of the world that prove that there was this global civilization and global connection that once occurred around the planet that was completely destroyed and wiped out. And Billy, you made some some excellent points there. Is and, and I want to address a couple of them. Is um, right now, yes, we're going through another one of these time periods. This cyclical nature time period. Don't allow the media to distract you and, and, and confuse you over what's going on right now. Oh, this warming that's occurring on the earth, completely just human induced, nothing to worry about. We're just gonna fix things up, cool things down. We're, we'll be all set, except mm -hmm. for the fact that we're right in line with another one of these cycles that I think is based on solar cycles um, that occur where you get extreme warming and then, and then a period of extreme cooling over mm -hmm. and over and over again. And in between each one of those events, you get a disaster. Now, how big that disaster is going to be is depends on a lot of factors, especially if you have an ice age. And that's why I don't I want to both remind people that that's why this important is this this information is so important to learn right now, because we're in this window where, where we have all of this available to us. And we don't know how long that window is going to be. And secondly, thankfully, this is the part where I go the positive direction um, on this discussion is that we don't have an ice age right now. And that's something that a lot of people, it gets past and they say, oh my God, these events that occurred back then, they're gonna be just as bad right now. Well, they, they, they sort of can't be because without that ice age and having one to two miles of ice above where I'm sitting right now <laughs> talking to you, you, you're not gonna have that massive outburst of water that flooded, which is what was one of the major components, I believe, behind what they describe as being the great deluge. Now, mm -hmm. I do think that there is um, earthquake and, and um, volcanic activity that occurs as well. And I'm not gonna poo-poo um, -poo the idea that we're, we're not gonna have challenges that are gonna be coming up in our future. But we just have to understand and, and really look back at these events in history and then learn from them and try to figure out if we're gonna go the same route that these ancient civilizations did and disappear, or if we're gonna be able to stand the test of time and our civilization is gonna continue. And so that's why we're at a crossroads right now because we need to understand that the Maya, the Aztec, the Hopi, the Hindu, the Cherokee, and then many, many other ancient cultures around the world, they clearly state in their, in their ancient writings and between, in, in their stories, they say that, that human civilization today is, this is either the third or the fourth epic that, that we've had in our past. That means that human civilizations have gone through these cycles of rising up and then to being destroyed over and over again. And we're at the third or fourth of those time periods. And that's pretty mind-blowing to, to, to wrap your head around and consider, I think, Billy, don't you? Oh, absolutely. It tells you that we're in a grand cycle, just like the, uh, the Indians talk about the native, you know, not the Native American Indians, but the Indians in the East, when they're talking about these grand cycles of the yugas and the rise and fall of civilizations. Uh, and, you know, um, the nature of this universe is cyclical. 
and the rise and fall of civilizations is cyclical. And Tho talks about this in the Emerald Tablets, where he talks about the fact that he's actually traveled to other planets to watch civilizations rise and fall. So we're not the only ones that go through this situation. According to Tho, this happens all throughout the entire universe. Civilizations have this cyclical nature to them where they rise and fall. So we're not, you know, we're not the exception. The same thing happens here. Uh, and we're living, you brought up a very good point. We're living in a very small window uh, of opportunity here where we're able to uh, enjoy this planet, enjoy the beauty of nature, to flourish. <laughs> Okay, I forgot to tag uh... Okay, Young Democrats. Big man. And really, it's a shame when you see this tiny, when you can really understand how small this window is. It's, it's, it's smaller than a blink of an eye. It's quicker than a blink of an eye. Geologic time-wise, yeah. Geologically time-wise, yeah. So we're here, and we're battling each other and fighting each other, and we're pulling each other apart. We should be spending this little bit of precious time that we have to love each other, to have show unconditional love to your brother and your sister, to unite, to make, you know, and maybe even to find a way if we join up to break this cycle or maybe, uh, you know, travel the stars and do things that we have an opportunity to do while we have this window of opportunity here before the next geological disaster. And it's not a, it's not to be negative. It's just that it's just part of life. Just like you, your avatar body is born and it grows up and it lives. And when it wears out, it passes on. Uh, you know, the same thing happens, uh, you know, in, in these windows where you have uh, the uh, areas where air, galactic space is clear of debris and planets can, can prosper and grow and develop life. And then there's times where that doesn't happen anymore for a short period of time. So we've got to be happy with what we have here. We've got to really start to love each other and enjoy the opportunity, this window of opportunity that we do have on this planet. Very well said. And that's essentially leading us into, well, how far back do we go? And, you know, if, if, if we had the cyclical nature of, of destruction over and over and over again, you know, are we going to make it to the next epic, to the next stage, like you said? Just imagine what the future of humanity could be. Thoth talks about that all the time. You know, what the potential of what we have is almost infinite. It's, it's, um, it's infinite, except that we are, are 
uh, dramatically held back by all of these things that distract us and keep us locked in this illusion of the material world. And that's why Thoth calls us, we're the children of men. We're not men. We're not yeah. mankind. We're the children of men because we're all like these little kids that refuse to accept what we who really we really are and what defines the nature of reality. We, we get so distracted by this physical body. You know, this is me. This is me. I need as much as I can before I die because I can't take it with me, except that we're just eternal conscious energy and you can't take anything physical with you. Right. The only thing that matters is what you do during this life and what you leave behind in your legacy for the future. That's really all that matters. And mm -hmm. so on that note, um, we're going to get into some of these really controversial topics because we're going to go back even further. And when, when we discuss in places like the Arid to Genesis and Sumerian Kinglis, when it discusses how the first city was Eridu and then all these other cities emerged afterwards, people would scratch their head and be like, well, what else does it say, right? Is it, does it say anything else about what, what happened before that? What about, what about human civilizations? You know, I don't feel like a, an ape. You know, I, I really, I really, this, everything in this life tells me that I'm something different from an ape. Well, evidence clearly states the opposite of what we've been told in school through this Darwinian evolution aspect of where we're told that Neanderthals and Denisovians came along and started slowly developing. And then we broke away and then we had this rapid developing and then we ended up where we are. Except the problem is they don't explain at all how the human brain doubled in size in only a small time period or all these strange things about both why we have all these genetic abnormalities and, you know, we don't have hair on our body. We, we, if we mm -hmm. go on to nature and we try to try to survive in this world, we will die. It's almost like if you look at it from the outside, like an observer, it's like we're not really from here. It's mm -hmm. like we're just here as visitors and stewards here to learn and grow. Whereas what we're told is that we're just sort of this ape that got here where we are because of survival of the fittest. And because of that, we can do whatever we want. Right, Billy? Right. Yeah, that's, I totally don't agree with that. I believe that there's micro uh, changes of, you know, that, that uh, organisms are capable of, but the macro changes like what they, you know, they're describing in this evolution to go from a monkey to a human being, it would take, I mean, probably billions of years. I mean, even just uh, a 2% variance, which is the difference between us and a chimpanzee, uh, that 2% variance literally takes multi-millions of years if they were to, quote unquote, be real uh, macro evolution. Uh, and so I really do believe after looking at the research, after analyzing information in biology, having to do with chromosome number two being fused in the human genome, uh, having the telomere caps put on the end of chromosome number two, and geneticists, mainstream geneticists have said, this had to be done in a laboratory. They said it out their own mouths. They've written this down. This is like, you know, well-known, but they can't say who did it, but they can tell you it seems to happen around 200,000 years ago. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> Isn't that the same age we gave? If you add up all the, the dates for the reigns of these cities, you get oh, just over 200,000 years ago, which would fall in line with the first city ever created and this whole, I, this whole biblical story with Adam and Eve and the mm -hmm. creation of man, right? Absolutely. <laughs> so you, you start to take these biblical stories, right, that we think are all just myth, and then you take the, these direct evidence from these cuneiform tablets, and then you take all this genetic data, and you look at, uh, look at all of it on this holistic viewpoint, and all of a sudden you start to see that the story of what we've been told about who we are is extremely antiquated, biased, and inaccurate. And I actually go 
one step further to say that it was deliberately chosen. See, yeah. Darwin, if, if you look into Darwin and you look in his theories, he wrote confidently, he stated, and, and this is something that a lot of people don't bring up, is that mm-hmm. he expected that his theories were going to be disproved in the future. He, he mm-hmm. said that. He, he said, said that. he expected his theories to be disproved in the future because he saw holes in his logic. Mm-hmm. And he saw holes in what he was seeing around him. And he knew that. I, I, I know I really, um, I hammer on Darwin pretty bad. But the, the more you look at it, the more you can actually see that Darwin didn't even, like I said, he didn't even think that his theories were going to be something that stood the test of time. But what happened is religion and other organizations grabbed onto Darwin because they said, here is something we can use. Yeah. What happens if human beings view their existence as an ape? You know what I mean, Billy? Mm-hmm. Well, Absolutely. If someone perceives themselves as just an ape and that yeah. brain is created and that consciousness is created with a brain, Billy, I'm going to ask you, how would that change both what we do here and our perspective in the universe? Well, somebody uh, thought that they really came from apes and that uh, consciousness comes from the brain. It would limit you uh, because now you have a limited viewpoint of, uh, of where you came from and how you got to this point. I think that if you, um, that really locks you into the religious system. I think that if people would understand that we were uh, seated on this planet and then a little much later genetically modified, maybe even again by these Anunnaki beings or these Atlantean beings at some point, according to the ancient texts, but understanding that consciousness is not created in the brain, that consciousness is downloaded from the source. And I think that um, that would really expand people's uh, mentality to understand that they're part of something much bigger in this simple evolutionary type of a fairy tale, but they're really part of the God, the, the God divine energy that's flowing through the entire universe. And that the same divine energy that is creating everything that we consider to be matter in the third dimension and reality in the third dimension is the same divine energy flowing through and coursing through their veins. Uh, and, um, you know, there was a study, and a scientific study done where they took people and they put them in rooms and they put them in dark rooms and they put these electrodes on their head, connected them to a computer, they want to see what people's uh, brain electronically look like on a computer after looking at specific images so they can see how the brain reacts to information and digital information and images. Well, they found out something amazing by accident. So they spaced these images 10 seconds apart. They would put up something like a serene image of a lake view or an ocean or bed of roses. Then a horrific scene like somebody getting murdered or stabbed or shot. And then a weird scene like kind of in the middle, like a building on fire and things like that. So all of a sudden what started happening is the data readout on the computer started uh, telling the computer what the next image was going to be up to seven seconds in advance. So that proves that we're getting a download of information from the future or from maybe real time, and we're not living in real time. So again, the brain doesn't create consciousness. It downloads it. Every case study they did, it worked out the same way. After a few minutes, the human brain was picking up the next image and transmitting it to the computer before the image showed up on the screen. Every case study they did. So this is how powerful we truly are. Our brain has billions of magnetite crystals. We download information directly from space-time, uh, and we bring it into our reality tunnel so that we can operate within it. Uh, but that's a whole other point of view that they don't really want us to know. They want us to keep us very locked in and, and, and focused on, you know, ape to human and 6,000 years and all this other kind of crazy stuff. But the true reality is we are much bigger and much more important than, some, than this evolutionary fairy tale that's been taught. That's right. And that's really well said, Billy. I could not agree more. Uh, what I wanted to say on in regards to that is 
Um, one of the examples I give that I talk about a lot is um, human beings right now perceive themselves as just this animal, right? Just this advanced animal. And it's like they're in this giant fenced in pen and they're all going to work and they're all doing what they're told. And they have, they live generally these very, just come home, we watch TV, we, maybe we go out for a hike every once in a while, we go out to do something, but largely our lives are very um, uneventful. And, and then before we die, that's why the regrets of most people is that they never really did anything, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, so those are, that's this form of conformity that we talk about where people, the perception of reality that's been created here is not simply just based on some scientist that created it and oh, that's what all the evidence says, so we're gonna go along with that. It's actually a paradigm to control our consciousness and how we perceive reality here. Because we're about to read some cuneiform tablets that completely contradict what we're told. And you're going to see how this mindset could control human civilizations. So get, getting back before we start that, getting back to, I want to bring up a point, getting back to this farm of conformity. Um, those animals that are in that farm, doing what they're doing on a daily basis, going to some dead-end job and wasting all their energy and time, and then they die and they wonder what they spend all their time doing. If those animals, and I, I use that animal as, that term animal as just a, an example because we're not really animals at all, are we? But if those animals realize that they're not farm animals at all and that they're actually this incredible being that doesn't belong caged at all, it belongs, you know, doesn't belong having its wings clipped, it belongs out expanding consciousness and reaching the infinite stars and all of these things whereas the complete opposite is happening right now and and when those when you discover the truth and when you read these ancient translations and tablets and when you look at all this data it's like finding a hole in that fence and running away and never coming back ever again but the challenge that i put to every single person here and i bring this up in my previous book the challenge and it goes along with plato's cave that that the idea that everyone's trapped by these illusions is that you have when you break out of that pen and you run away and the sun is basking on you and you're free the challenge then becomes you have to come back you have to come back and save the rest of the animals that are in that farm or they're not going to make it out and that collective of humanity is going to go down that road that other civilizations did and we're going to be wiped out and we're going to disappear and become a myth just like they did because we're not learning the fundamental lessons we need to right now to make changes and reach the next level of our consciousness. So, so on that note, Billy, let's go into what actually says in these tablets and discusses it. Okay. And so, and so we're going to be starting with, um, we're going to be starting what's called the Enuma Elish. And I know it's very dear to your heart, Billy, because it's one of the ones yeah. that I know you talk about um, among the most of all. And the Enuma Elish was found in the Ashurbanipal Library, as I mentioned, in 1849. And there's been many translations and different versions of it that have been brought up. And, and I want to also just mention before we bring that up that it may be amazing for some to read and understand that you'll bring, you'll, you'll read one version of the Enuma Elish, then you'll read another version like the Babylonian version. You'll notice that they're different. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to bring up is that there is a competition among these gods for who created mankind. And who mm -hmm. can get credit for being their savior and their and their fa great father? And so, yeah. if you read Babylonian versions of what we're about to read right now, you find out that it says that Mardu created mankind. Okay, right. and we're gonna, we can get into and talk about that as well. But it's this competition for who can be the savior and who could be the, the the great creator of, of our species. So, in the version we're going to be reading, it's a version that came out of Nineveh, and it's the version that I feel is the most accurate. 
Um, and it's, it was translated by uh, great translators like Stephanie Daly and George Smith, some of the, some of the best that have been out there. Um, and so the Enuma Elish starts by saying, in, in this, from where we're going to begin, it says, they bound him, holding him before Ea. They inflicted the penalty on him and severed his, his blood vessels. From his blood, he, Ea, created mankind, on whom he imposed the service of the gods and set the gods free. And then it says, after the wise Ea had created mankind and had imposed the service of the gods upon them, that task is beyond comprehension. The gods were then divided. All the Anunnaki into upper and lower groups. He assigned 300 in the heavens to guard the decrees of Anu and appoint them as a guard. Chapter 6. Isn't that amazing? Oh, it's amazing, yeah. I mean, it, it just tells you right there. And Billy, I'm sure you know that that same dis description is almost um, referenced um, exactly in the Atrahasis as well. Isn't that, isn't that just mind-boggling with all these questions yeah. that people have? It's amazing that the Atreasis epic and this have so many similar verses in them. So it tells you that it's, it's right on point. You know, it's really amazing. And uh, and the thing that I like about the, the Enuma Elish is the fact that it mentions the Anunnaki, it mentions uh, Marduk or, or the Nibiru planet, and depending on the version that you're reading. And you can find Marduk in the modern day Bible. You can find him in the Torah. You can find these names through the American Library. So it's not even been hidden. It's there, but people have just never paid attention to it. Well, let's let's try to have people understand they might not know these names. So Ea, that's mentioned directly in this translation that we read, his name originally was known as Ea before he came here, and then he, his title was then was then changed to Enki. Okay, now so Enki, I'm just going to refer to him as Enki. That was because that was his later his later name, but Enki is the one that is credited in every single ancient text except some of these other versions that were later re re rewritten as being the creator of mankind. And he was, he was said to be this great being that created mankind to do the workload of the gods. And actually the phrase I like even more, if you go read the Atrahasis, which those translations are in the stage of time, is it the, the phrase that it gives in the Atrahasis is even better. It says they created mankind specifically for the role of the, to, to do the role of the gods. But it says the phrase to undo the chain to set them free, undo the chain to set them free. Now, I want to tell you what I think about that, and then maybe you can mention what you think, Billy. Um, but but I, I believe that that references the chain of the physical reality of the third dimension and being mortal. I think mm -hmm. these beings used human, the human race as a way to achieve immortality and also probably to achieve a non-physical um, ex existence here where they could go into upper dimensions and basically rule over us because we exist in a, in a lower state of awareness than they do. And, and, then, and then you can chime in, but I want to also mention is that, well, who is Marduk? Because we brought that up. Marduk is credited as being the first son of, of Enki, Ea. And so this competition arose between these younger generation gods and the older generation gods who were competing here on, on, on who could rewrite everything, who could become the savior, who could become the great, the great god here. And that's what this competition has been over and over and over again. And that's why Billy and I try to fight so hard to try to get the most accurate information because it's a, it's a battle of information and it's a battle of understanding the, the truth, right, Billy? Oh, it's a big battle. I mean, uh, you know, even I just made a post on Instagram about the fact that Marduk, also known as Amun-Ra, is responsible for the defacing of a lot of these statues and these hieroglyphs around Egypt. And a lot of people got immediately offended and they're really going crazy on the comment feed. When they get off of this, 
this show with you. I'm going to check my comments. It's going to be real hectic because people don't want to um, uh, come to terms with the fact that this was done in deep antiquity. I've been to Egypt. I've seen the thousands upon thousands of defaced gods in the hieroglyphs. I'm talking about temples with glyphs, probably, I would say, two, three hundred thousand glyphs in one temple all chipped away. Faces of all of the uh, statues broken off. And these go way back further than Napoleon. You know, they want to say Napoleon went and shot the noses off and people didn't want people to know that they were black. No, Amin Ra, also known as Marduk, is the one who had this done because why? Because he wants to be known as the, only, the one and true only God. The same term that actually made it into modern day Bible. Uh, you know, had, these guys had big egos. I mean, big, big, big egos, man. Um, and they were battling each other consistently to be the one to do this and the one to do that. And matter of fact, if you look in the modern day Bible, look at the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy, and especially when you figure out that the word God in the Bible is mistranslated with God's singular, it's supposed to be God's plural, everywhere in the entire Bible. Yeah. It was purposefully done. In the book of Deuteronomy, you have these gods who are Marduk and his cousins and his nephews and everybody else fighting each other and sending humans across to another area with people that they don't know, never met before, to battle them, to, to rob and rape and steal and everything else. These are the actual words used in the modern day Bible, rape, kill, murder, uh, and so forth, you know? And they were battling each other using humans as, as cattle, kind of like we do today. We take somebody out of school, we send them halfway around the world, put them in the military, tell them to go blow up a guy on a camel so he can get a free education. It's a mind <laughs> trick we played on the people now, so they've got these gods doing the same That's thing today funny. as they did in ancient times. <laughs> uh, but uh, it's really amazing how they wanted to be able to take claim for everything. And you see it passed down to the pharaohs. The pharaohs would take claim for a tomb that wasn't theirs. They would take claim for a pyramid that they didn't really build. They take claim for anything because they want to have that uh, they want to have that reputation that added to their bio. That know? legacy, right? Yeah, that legacy is crazy. It's and, and that's where it really comes down to um and that legacy is what is being fought over right now. That 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 battle has not ended. It's just we don't perceive it the same way because our understanding of linear time um, is is different than perhaps others. Um, yeah, yeah. We exist in a certain kind of 24-hour cycle based on this 12-hour clock. And it's really interesting to, if you look at the origins of where that came from and how that rules everything. How, because how we perceive time is how we perceive events and how we perceive the, um, how things go over the course of history. Um, and I want to bring up a couple of little interesting points um, as we talk about human origins is that and we really touched on that well when Billy was discussing how, you know, we download consciousness or we're like antennas for consciousness. And that we're really these beings that are here that didn't arise from just simply just an evolved state. Now, I do I do believe that human beings are a product that includes um, a primitive um, ape, but that as like a blueprint. But that doesn't mm -hmm. mean that that's our complete origins. Um, if let me give you an example. I think this is one of the best examples to really look at this, to disprove what, what has been taught. Billy brought up what's called micro versus macro. Micro means very small. Macro means larger. And so, and that's one of the things that I, I talk about in the stage of time a lot is that like Lloyd Pye says, evolution, as we've been taught, is much more likely to be on a micro scale than on a macro scale, meaning that small things do happen over time based on the environments and things that occur. But large things either take a really, really long time or they did not happen the way that we're told. And I think the same thing happened with humanity and the human race. Because if, if you look at 
how far back the human race goes and everything we've left behind in writings, everything we've left behind in observations throughout time. There's never been one mention ever of an ape that's been observed changing on a level that we can understand that would be related to evolution. Yes, there's apes that can be taught gorillas and things that can be taught how to read certain things and, and certain intelligence because they do have an intelligence that can reach a certain level and that is rather intelligent, but it's nowhere on the same scale of what human consciousness and the human brain is capable of on the, or even on the map of the inner planets start uh, inner planets of our solar system close to our sun i'm talking about mercury venus earth and mars those four and our sun are mapped out right there at giza on the plateau amazing amazing it's, basically we're looking at a lost civilization with technology that was existing and it's now just these remnants and pieces that are left and, yeah. in, and what Billy said is, is, is spot on, is that here we have these structures that we've been told how we're housing pharaohs. And that's what everyone is told in school, and that's how they perceive the purpose of all these structures. Okay, yeah, they wanted to be remembered in the future, so they, they buried them there, and then, oh, look, that's their tomb. Yeah. Whereas when, when people, you know, that's, that's what we, we're, we're dealing with here, is that there's a paradigm that's been created about ancient history and about our origins, and about everything that we perceive in reality to, to create this certain doctrine here of, of what we think and what we follow. Whereas when you start looking at the evidence from the Great Pyramids, you like Billy said, you look at the Great Pyramid Giza and you say, there's never been a pharaoh ever found there. And there's not even ever been any hieroglyphs inside. In fact, there's all this strange technology with these chambers pointing at different star systems and water being utilized underneath and all these secret tunnels connecting all these specific points. And quickly you get to, you get to realize oh wow so this is this is not a tomb at all. Then you factor in things like the fact that this is located right in the very center of the land masses of the Earth, and that it's on these important ley lines, these convergence centers of energy, just like all the other structures all around the world that we're about to go over in a few minutes. You get to see that there was this giant grid system created here, this giant grid system created here, harnessing electromagnetic energy. And that these, these sophisticated cultures were likely, like Billy said, they may have been connected to all over the stars. We don't know how advanced the civilization was because the destruction that destroyed it was so severe that all that was literally all that was left of these civilizations are these megalithic structures they created and some of the stories and writings that were left behind to be carried on in the future. Everything else that existed was either buried or destroyed over time. And so that's where we're trying to put these clues and pieces together to these lost civilizations in human history that connect all the way back to human origins. But that story does not end in Egypt. It does not end in Kem, because we have to understand that Egypt, the name itself, is a name that came later. And I want to point out, and I've mentioned it many times, is that we see a distinct difference in the sophistication and building of a lot of this advanced technology in Egypt, along with some later building of dynastic pharaohs and i want to point that out so when you go to a place like karnak and you have a you have these large blocks of things like travertine and you can't find travertine more than a thousand miles away in turkey and you have these huge granite blocks like above the tomb of osiris which is not a real tomb at all it's more of a physical uh, a non-physical um energy reincarnation tomb for a great being osiris that i believe was connected to enki but anyway, when you start to look at that and you look at those massive stone blocks that were quarried at the Aswan quarry 
hundreds of miles away, it all starts to make sense to say, ah, oh, so these different distinct time periods occurred with these different mm -hmm. civilizations that then passed down knowledge to the next one that came. And then over time, every single time one of these civilizations came later, more and more knowledge was lost. And then before you know it, we lump them all together as just one civilization. And, and that's where a lot of this confusion comes in, right, Billy? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you hit it right on the head. I mean, literally what's happened is every time you move to another generation or another dynastic era, the, the, the technology gets worse, the construction gets worse. And it's a video that I had made, I guess, with some other guys on YouTube where they, they kind of gave me an impromptu interview. And I had said, I told them that the further back you go, the more perfect the construction and the closer you come to forward in time, the worse the construction. And I've seen That's the opposite we've been told, right? Exactly. I mean, how could there be? It's more. How can it be perfect in the past, in the deep antiquity, and then be worse in the current day? Uh, and anybody who doesn't believe this, you just need to do one thing: save up your money, fly to Egypt, land in Cairo, and look how the people live. Look at the buildings that they're living in, and then go to the pyramids, and you're going to go, "Oh my God, how we have fallen!" I mean, they're living in buildings that are dilapidated, uh, hand hand mud brick condos. This is what they're living in, like right now today, in 2019. And then off in the distance, you have this, you have this like Giza plateau, which looks like an advanced piece of technology left behind, uh, but still looks better than what they're living in. I mean, the evidence is there that the further back you go, it's just, it's just incredible. I went to Cambodia, uh, and as I've got to Angkor Wat, Angkor Wat is still in amazing condition to this very day. But as you travel through, it's 500 hectares of land, so I went hiking 37 miles through the jungle when I was there in 120 degree heat. So obviously I was very motivated to see these locations. I would say nobody, so. Nobody really wants to do that. But uh, as I got further in time to more recent temples that were built, guess what? They were dilapidated, they were falling apart. They weren't megalithic anymore. The stones were stones that I could pick up with my own hands if I put a little effort, effort into it. Uh, so the closer I got to, to, to our current era, the worse the construction, you know? And this is what you see in Egypt as well. Brilliantly said, and that's something that is echoed by a lot of researchers now that are not quite on the fringe that, of, of Billy and I, but that just, just speak about lost civilizations, you know, like Graham Hancock and Brian Forrester and Robert Schock and a lot of these other ones. They're saying, look, you can pinpoint all of these different places around the world from, you know, go from Pumapunka, go from Machu Picchu, go from all the way up through the Americas, Ushmal, mm -hmm. um, right up through Machu Picchu, um, and then up through Chichen Itza. You go through all the Americas, you find the same thing. It is all this ancient, sophisticated building on the very bottom for whatever was whatever remained. And then the top is all this less sophisticated, really primitive building. And then when you take that model and you go around the world, you get to distinguish and you get to separate oh, all these different civilizations. This one came later. This one came earlier. And that's how we get to piece these pieces together. And part of that journey is then traveling around and going to see these anomalies around the world and deciding and, and, and doing research into them and figuring out, oh, okay, this is what legacy this, this piece belongs to and this is what this piece belongs to, okay? Now, where this journey is going to take us is when you read about Thoth in, in, in Kem, one of the things you find out is he was actually, either he left or he was, some even say he was kicked out by, by Amun-Ra. And, and but regardless of which which you believe, he definitely left Kem and he went to create these new civilizations of Atlantis around the world. And he went to two key locations, in my opinion, that I see evidence on, and that is um, the area of the United States, Mexico, and South America. Those areas 
have this heavy influence of this, these builders and this rise of civilization that seems to have come out of nowhere. Um, I wanna just bring up in, 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 in Puebla, Mexico, down near um, Teotihuacan and Tenochtitlan, that, that area of, of Mexico that's near Mexico City, there, um, archeologists have done digs in some of those areas and they've found evidence that shows um, sophisticated civilizations lived there well over 100,000 years ago. So we're looking at these time periods that completely rewrite the narrative of what we think. There may have been civilizations that were destroyed even before these. There could have been time periods where other people existed there because that's what these say. I wanna bring up, um, it, go to that incredible Mayan temple site of Ushmal, okay? This is probably the best example I can pick out. Um, in, in the Mesoamerica, in the Mexico Mesoamerica area, showing this, what we're talking about right now. The name Ushmal means built three times, okay? And I want people to look that up because it's totally mind-blowing, is that the very name means that. And the temple there, the, the largest temple, is called Temple of the Wizards. Just like, if you remember the Emerald Tablet when we read of both, he says he's the great master of mysteries and the great magician and a wizard. That's, that's what he's referenced as. And so you see these common examples and these influences all around the world of these sites where they, they traveled around and created these civilizations, right, Billy? Absolutely. I mean, you, you, again, you're right, man. You're, you're a great researcher, man. Uh, went to Teotihuacan, Mexico. Uh, I had the blessing to be able to go to Thoth's house, Kukulcan, whatever you want to call him. He's got a million names, as you know. But it was his house where it's still there. It's still there. He actually lived on this on site. And one thing I want to point out is a lot of uh, people might get offended by this in a way when they've learned this, but if they go research it, they'll find it is true. The Mayans did not build Teotihuacan. I'll say that again. The Mayans did not build Teotihuacan. And where did I get this from? From a homegrown archaeologist in Teotihuacan. <laughs> it's actually taught there in schools. It's actually taught there in Mexico that the Mayans did not build it, neither did the Aztecs. The Teotihuacans were there much uh, further back than the Mayans. The Mayans kind of inherited what was already there and some of the wisdom and teaching that were left behind, but they didn't build it. Uh, and then uh, there was a volcanic eruption much later, a couple hundred years later, in a valley, and the Aztec people had to migrate out of that area because their whole uh, city or their, their living area was destroyed, and they stumbled across Teotihuacan, and they inherited it as well. Okay, so this is why you have a situation where you see advanced technology, advanced building uh, techniques being used, and then you have these people that are still, uh, you know, uh, killing, killing, and cutting people's heads off and cutting their hearts out to give to the gods and sacrificing virgins and all this. Going, wait a minute, how can you be this technologically advanced, but then you're doing all these uh, sacrificial things and all this other stuff that didn't really make any sense? It's because they were almost like a cargo cult in a way. And they were trying to bring the gods back, just like you know we've done here on earth in modern times with the, the people from Bikini Atoll and stuff like that. So uh, it's really amazing. I mean, these, these, uh, these Anunnaki, Atlantean people, whatever you want to call them, they really made their way around this entire planet. They influenced so many civilizations. And when both left out of Africa and came to uh, Mesoamerica and kickstarted the civilizations here, they built this super advanced civilization. When I went to Mexico City, there were literally hundreds of hills in Mexico City. So we're talking with the archaeologist and the driver, 
who's also a researcher, and he's pointing at all the hills, and he's saying, you see this hill, you see that hill, you see that hill? I'm like, yeah, what's up with all these hills? He goes, every hill is a pyramid underneath the street, underneath the tar, underneath everything, underneath the church. So what they did was, he said in ancient times, they blew up, not ancient times, sorry, in more recent times, the Spaniards blew up the tops of the pyramids and then put churches on top of them. Uh, and so Catholic churches. So unfortunately, that's what's happened. But if you were to go and dig up every one of those hills, you're going to find literally hundreds of pyramids just in that one area. So it's really amazing and astounding what was accomplished down there. Uh, and I wish I could just get in the time machine, man, and go back. But um, that that area, that whole entire region was highly sophisticated. And at Teotihuacan, Teotihuacan uh, if you really take a good look at it, it really looks like an advanced spaceport to me. I can envision uh, some type of launch tower. Those the shorter platforms look like launch towers where you would put a, a vehicle up to that would just kind of sit there on a the pad waiting to take off. Just in my personal opinion, that's what it looks like. Uh, and then you have um, the Pyramid of the Sun and Pyramid of the Moon, which are actually fractalized pyramids. They're pyramids on top of pyramids on top of pyramids. And the Pyramid of the Sun is built on top of what? An aquifer just like the one in Great in Giza. And the Pyramid of the Sun has the same exact size base and is exactly 50% the height of the Pyramid of Giza. That doesn't happen by accident. That was done on purpose. You have the same, again, you have the same architect then duplicating these, uh, this, this technique over here in Mesoamerica and helping to kickstart the civilization long before the Mayans arrived. Exactly. There's a there's a certain type of signature of the size of the block ratio. It's like a 52 cubit block that is used. You see the same type of building. And I know that a lot of people, it's like they constantly share those images of, of pyramids across the world. And they say, you know, are they connected? Are they, are they um, somehow influenced by similar places? And it's amazing to me how much of our society, because of the whole indoctrinated system of what they've been made to believe and how they don't want to be out of the mainstream, they'll choose to ignore that. They'll just say, oh, that's just a coincidence. It doesn't really matter. Because what happens when you start to dwell, delve into this is you go down this long road of having to completely reorganize your thoughts and, and how you perceive the past. So Billy brought up some, some great, great points there, Billy. Well said is that in all of these ancient sites, whether it's Mayan or Aztec or, or um, down in throughout Peru and down in um, Miracocha's area of um, Pumapuku, you find that all of those ancient cultures, like you said, when you ask them who built these structures and where they came from, they all state that they found them there and that mm -hmm. they were built by those, their ans those, those, those ancestors that they once um, revered and looked up to. And so what we think of as the Aztec, Aztec, Maya, and Inca are just these remnants of those civilizations from long ago and what's left over. And just, so just imagine it, right? Instead of these cultures we perceive now, their, their ancestors, instead of us perceiving them as building them, those structures, like Billy said, imagine them just like we were when we first rediscovered these in the jungle. You know, we're emerging through the brush and we open up this scene and we see this temple out in the jungle and it's all destroyed and there's strewn everywhere and there's just pieces of it. And this culture is amazed by it and they start poking around through the ruins and they find these ancient writings and they're reading about them. And they're blown away because there's all this knowledge that completely changes. And what happened? This civilization all of a sudden becomes jump-started because they have all this knowledge and wisdom. So mm -hmm. they try to emanate what was there before. They try to rebuild it. They try to connect with these gods because they learn through these writings. They learn that these 
long ago they were influenced by by things that are no longer there anymore by great beings that were great builders so what do they try to do they try to do blood sacrifice and all these awful techniques to try to get the gods to come back because they're desperate and that's where all this confusion comes in mm-hmm. it was out of corruption and desperation that a lot of those cultures did that not because they were influenced by their original wisdom bringers to do that um and that's so those are some of the misconceptions that we we got to get past here but what what this brings up and what's on the screen is what we're looking at is south america um and we're looking at the andes mountains in the background and you're looking at lake titicaca which is an amazing amazing place the the highest navigable lake in the world over a thousand feet deep Okay, which is really interesting if you start to look at the, the stories of Viracocha and how some of them claim that this great creator being came out of the depths of, of Lake Titicaca. And when you think about how the underworld and the Abzu, this lower world, is connected through these deep portals underground and caves and underwater, it starts to make sense and it makes, starts to scratch your head and wonder about the significance of what Lake Titicaca plays. Well, anyway. On, along the shores of Lake Titicaca, which is in Bolivia, South America, all over the place you find these strewn ruins of ancient civilizations, Kumupuku, Tiwanaku. And like Billy said, they didn't call themselves what we think they call themselves. They said that they were the, their ancestors were called um, the Tiwanakus, and mm-hmm. some of them called themselves the Viracocians. So they, they, these aren't even terms that reference the Inca. They're these long ago terms that we don't even use anymore. But when we start to look at the evidence from that region to try to connect it, to say, okay, what's the evidence that actually proves that these civilizations are connected? So give me something out that's not just circumstantial. Well, go look up the Fuente Magna Bowl. It'll completely blow your mind. And that's what I have on the screen right now, the image. So a little backstory so people know what that means is in 1958, next to Lake Titicaca, where all these ancient ruins are, go look up Pumapunku, some of the strangest ruins on the entire planet near that same area where all that advanced technology is already from these ancient Viracocians, you find there was this, there was this field that a farmer was plowing in, 19, in 1958. And all of a sudden, his plow hit the edge of something. So he gets out and he goes down in his field and he picks up this artifact. And it's this very strange bowl, okay? Now, some, ex, some academics will tell you that this is all fabricated and it's not real. Just like a lot of this stuff we're going into to try to make people think that all of this is, is just uh, some fantasy and that what we're, what we're told is the correct story. Whereas if you go do research, you can clearly see that all of this stuff is real and it's all just there if people know where to look. So this farmer finds his bowl and he picks it up and he wipes away the dirt inside and he finds these ancient inscriptions and he doesn't recognize it at all. It's not something that he's ever seen before. So he brings it into the, to the, some of the experts in the area and he has a sent away and they determined that it's cuneiform writing. Now, if you look at the similarities of it, you find the same etch marks and like Billy knows, they still create cuneiform today. And you can see those etch marks are almost exactly mirrored, mirrored in this, in, in this bowl. And, and Billy said, well, they say it's some kind of a proto um, cuneiform Sumerian writing, but what does that even matter? It's still <laughs> <laughs> that the same writing is connected all the way across the world, right, Billy? Absolutely. I mean, this doesn't happen by accident. There's no sense of coincidence here. This is actual uh, something that evidence of somebody teaching people in different parts of the world the same exact writing techniques with the same exact type of a stylus and the same exact type of a clay, uh, wet clay uh, system. 
Uh, and uh, like I said earlier, before we got on the air, was um, Mr. Finkel at the uh, British Museum has a great little video, very short video on uh, on YouTube, where he actually takes a stylus and he impresses into wet clay and begins to do the cuneiform writing. Uh, and it's very tedious to just make a one name or one word or one phrase. That's why I think that these cuneiform tablets are so important because you've got some information here. And we've got millions of these tablets now that have been discovered around the world, but we've got information that somebody took their tedious time and effort to create and write and then bake and put it on in a way that it can withstand the test of time. And I think when somebody goes to that level of effort to put information out, it's well worth our research and investigation to look into it because it's like a time capsule. It was put here for us in this current era to read it, decipher it, and to realize the true history of our ancient past, what went on in the ancient past. And it's really an amazing window that's been open for us to figure out what happened back then because the past is prologue. So we can analyze this, this information from around the world, all these cuneiform tablets, these bowls, these artifacts being discovered, these megalithic structures, and we can analyze all these stories from all this, these Sumerian cylinder scrolls and everything else that we've discovered now and figure out how can we prevent this from happening in the future? How can we curb this cyclical nature of, of rise and fall of civilization? Can we stop this cycle from rising and falling? Can we get to the next level? Can we become a type, a type one, type two, type three level civilization and harness the power of our star and prevent uh, galactic collisions with asteroids. And comets. Love it. Exactly. You know, so can we get to those levels? And I think what we're doing, me and you, Matt, I think that it's so crucial because it's like we're really the pioneers of bringing knowledge and information to the general population, which is going to spread like wildfire and maybe, just maybe, giving us an opportunity as a civilization to bypass this cycle of rise and fall and get to the next level as a civilization. Well said. And and uh, like, like Billy mentioned, um, what we're trying to do right now is not just being done by so many other people. Most mainstream academics and researchers are scared to even go into this idea of trying to decipher these ancient translations and texts. And that's why if you look at almost all these researchers, they'll delve into ancient megalithic stuff because that's that's pretty easy to see now. We, we really can know what that is. But a lot of this other stuff, because it connects to this idea of beings, entities, aliens, some kind of gods, all that stuff, it's off limits. And so most of them, because of credibility reasons and because of how controlled this information is, most aren't willing to connect those pieces. So that's why Billy and I are doing the best we can to not only preserve this ancient wisdom so we can last test, last the test of time, but also to make sure that others can, can understand what those teachings said and what they left behind long ago. Now, and what did they leave behind? Well, they left behind these amazing structures. And this is Saskatchewan outside of um, Cusco. And I know Billy has been to this one, but when you, when you look at something like this, um, it almost seems like this technology that exists in South America is in many ways even more perfect than I've seen anywhere around the world. Like they perfected it here. And what was that some kind of, a, did they melt these rocks and then reform them? And that's why they have these bizarre shapes. And so what, let me get your take on some of these incredible um, structures around the world. Man, this is just amazing. I mean, even seeing this again, I was there. So, you know, it's just, a, <laughs> I'm so happy, man, you know, you know, the way that I've been able to, to live my life. I mean, I've been there. I've touched those stones right where that gentleman is standing. I took a picture right there. Um, and uh, even the archaeologist that was there with us that we hired was saying that, you know, <laughs> the gods built this. 
And I mean, you still can't put a human hair between some of these blocks. Uh, they withstood earthquakes, uh, you know, d disasters, storms, everything else you could think of. And they're still there and they're still rock. I mean, they're locked solid together. And it, it almost looks like some type of a, a heating tool or a heating laser or something just molded them together. But you're not going to go to a rock quarry, cut rock, and then bring it to a location hundreds of miles away just to make these intricate cuts. When you could just stack the blocks and make simple square blocks, you don't need to make these intricate cuts. Uh, these intricate cuts are so amazing, it just it just leads you to, to believe that it's got to be some type of advanced technology, something that molded and bent these rocks and glued them together in a way. It's almost like they're hermetically sealed in a way. I mean, they're really locked together. They can't. You can't just like pry one of these blocks away. It's not that easy. Uh, and the fact that we can't really duplicate this today, it leads us, you know, it just adds more credence to, to, to the fact that these people had some advanced technology, whether it was a harmonic frequency tools, cymatic tools, um, you know, because cymatics, the right frequency can generate heat. Did they use a frequency tool to, to, um, to mold these bricks together, these blocks together? Whatever it was, and also they, they designed them also in a way that they made them earthquake-proof, so they actually have the capability in certain areas of sliding and moving with the vibrations of the earth. It's just really amazing. This was a great fort, and the top was a great uh, temple, which yeah. the temple it didn't, it did not stand the test of time. Uh, the walls are there, but the top's missing, but this is just an amazing place. Yeah, and it's, now notice, Billy, what the design of the blocks almost looks like. To me, it looks like a honeycomb design, wouldn't you say? It has oh, this yeah. type of honeycomb design. And, and so what was the purpose of that, right? Like, why would you want to design them just like this with these knobs sticking out in some spots and these really strange angles? And I think what you said nails it on the head. I think that those were designed in a certain way to act as a harmonic frequency so that it's like a, like a tuning fork. Things. And so we can have this certain type of harmonic frequency because like Billy said, there was a big temple sitting up there. And so you had to create this certain kind of energy connection with that temple. And that's what it was all about back then. We find yeah. these sites when you, when you look at a world map, you know, go search really quick on Google and go look up ley lines of the earth and then go look up ley lines of the earth and the, and the location of megalithic sites around the world. And boom, they line up almost perfectly. And quickly you can see that, wow. So not only did these advanced civilizations know about that, and first of all, how did they know about the convergence of energy lines around our planet? I mean, that is almost mind-blowing for us to even consider now. And we're circumnavigating the globe with GPS units and compasses and everything all over the place. And yet these, these civilizations knew in many ways what we don't even know now anymore at all. They had knowledge about energy and consciousness and the cosmos that we're, we're just starting to piece together and get back today. But this legacy all around the world, you can really see it. And you can really see how, what happened? Well, there were these lost civilizations after Atlantis that spread around the world. And then these destructive events occurred that ended the last ice age. And that is the most key point I wanna leave behind. These events are what ended the ice age. They're not just coinciding with the end of the ice age. There was a, a massive ice age, for those who don't know, where I am, the Laurentide ice sheet, miles deep. I mean, if you were to try to put, try to envision something like the Empire State Building or any of these large buildings around the world, that wouldn't even come close to the depth of this ice. Mm -hmm. So if you had ice ages covering the world, 
And then those ice ages, those, that ice rapidly melts and you get these global tectonic shifts and earthquakes and tsunamis and sun coming in on coral mass ejections and like burning structures and causing vitrification on it. When you're seeing all that evidence around the world, it paints this picture of these cataclysms that were so disastrous that they're like something out of some Hollywood movie that we can't even imagine today because they were so, so um, severe that they wiped out all of these civilizations around the world to where I think that there was only a few elders that remained. And they, those elders tried to jumpstart civilization in other places, but over time that was unsuccessful. And eventually we, we almost went back to the stone age basically, right, Billy? Absolutely, that's right. That's exactly what happened. We literally uh, had lost all of the knowledge, all the wisdom, uh, the, the, uh, the verbal history uh, had been passed down. But as you go through, you know, using, utilizing verbal history and passing that down generations, you begin to lose uh, some of the information over time. So generation after generation, it became less and less important as survival became more important. Uh, and just like today, we all use cell phones. I use a cell phone, you use a cell phone. But if civilization was to collapse right now, uh, I don't know how to make a cell phone. You know, so... I know some of the parts work, but I don't know how to actually physically make a cell phone and rebuild the towers to make the cell phones communicate the microwave signals and so forth. It's a lot of collaboration to get all that back up. So when something collapses like that, even if you have a few wise people, it's not just like, well, they knew about it. How can we can't kickstart it again? Well, it takes a lot of collaboration and a lot of people knowing little different parts and working together to rebuild a high level of civilization. It just typically can't be done with two or three wise men. You got to have quite a quite a bit of people on the same level uh, and working together in unison. Uh, but by survival took hold and, you know, it became a priority. Information just became, you know, that type of knowledge became less and less important as people were just trying to make it through the day. Yeah. And so you, so if you, you can imagine back then those original builders, maybe they returned to some of those civilizations after, and they try to impart that wisdom again, but then they leave and they move on somewhere else. And so over time, maybe you, you would see, like we see with this building, you would see mm -hmm. a blossoming for a short period of time where they would try to restart that civilization and reach that sophistication. But mm -hmm. then without guidance, without those teachers around, that civilization would end up becoming corrupted. It would fall down into these lower moral codes of blood sacrifice and war and all of these things we find today, which is actually echoed even in our civilization now. It seems like there's this eventual downfall of situations civilizations where they often become corrupted if they're not given guidance and wisdom to um, follow a certain path and so we're moving to the last location today on our journey and this is what i consider the very heart of the aztec empire okay this is teotihuacan and this is uh, an ancient aztec city which and like billy mentioned if you go around the world okay go to any of these megalithic sites, one of the common things you find is that their largest pyramids are almost always named the Pyramid of the Sun and the Pyramid of the Moon, which is fascinating because yet again provides this connection with, with how they thought back then and, and the purpose behind why they were building the structures. I mean, this, this, this area that you have is literally what was attempted to try to create a new Atlantis. How, what's some of the evidence to back that up? Right next to this site, is a place called Tula, Mexico, where you have these massive statues of these huge guards, and they're called the Atlantean warriors. And I bring that up every time because 
they're specifically called that as part of the ancient wisdom. That's not a name that was given to them later, but it proves to you. It shows that that was the whole purpose was they were trying to create these new Atlantean civilizations and that those pieces, whether you want to talk about the Olmec, whether you want to talk about the Aztec, the Maya, the Inca, the Viracocians, and many, many other branches of that, they're all just this part of this lost history that we're just trying to put the pieces back together today, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, Thoth came here. Uh, his name changed many times while he was in Mesoamerica. I mean, you know, he's been everybody. Pupacan, Quetzalcoatl, Veracocha. He might have even been Lord Pakal. Yeah, that's right. That's a good point. Right. And I've been to Tula, Mexico. I've been to the Atlantean statues, took pictures next to them. And they're holding technology in their hands. They've got on what looked like to be some type of sophisticated what? suit or outfit with, with uh, uh, what looks like a, uh, a container or something on the chest and on the back. And handbags, right? They have the handbags. Yep. One, some of them look like they're holding, might be even holding a weapon in a way, the way it's, they're set up. I'm going to show I'm going to send you my photos. It's really amazing stuff. But um, I've been to... Hashtag politics AF. Thanks for 57K listeners. Exclamation point. Wow, you guys are catching on. Seven downloads, call it. Seven K downloads. Um, I swear like a sailor. It's like a fucking croissant emoji that popped up under after roll. Okay. podcast on the planet <laughs> to, to Tula at the top of the pyramid of Kukulkan there I've been to uh, 
uh, right down from there, I went into this other place called Kukawamilpa, uh, Kakawamilpa. It's a very strange name. It's a mountain there. And they take you on a tour inside this mountain. And you go, we went down about, uh, uh, man, maybe uh, two kilometers. And about 90 meters up from the floor, I took a video of a Egyptian head carved into the inside of this mountain on the inside of this uh, cave that we, this gigantic cave system we were in. And the cave just kept going. Uh, but in there, it's carved in a way, again, using highly advanced technology. And somebody in ancient times was utilize, utilizing that cave as a kingdom. You can tell by the way it's set up. Uh, the, the strange thing, though, is the further you go, the less oxygen you get. And it just kept on going. I mean, it kept going and going and going. And you had to, all the tourists had to loop around because the, the oxygen becomes more thin down there. You can't, you know, somebody's going to start passing out. But down there is evidence of advanced technology. I wish I could have kept going with some oxygen masks on just to see how far I can go and really tap into some stuff that they probably didn't cover up. That they didn't take down that one Egyptian uh, motif, that Egyptian head sticking out of the, out of the uh, inside of the cave up there. But this whole area is full of nothing but amazing things. Just looking at this, this image you have on the screen now, like I said before, and I was talking earlier, these look like launch pads to me. I mean, just to me. I could be wrong, but they kind of resemble launch pads. I've climbed up on top of these structures in front of the Pyramid of the Sun, uh, right along the Avenue of the Dead. And uh, I have videos of me on Facebook on top of these structures and everything else. And they really look like um, something would mount up to them and be like they were there to hold something. And then people would walk up these stairs to get into whatever that thing was in ancient times. Another thing that's amazing is this entire place is connected by these underground tunnels, but they're not really tunnels. They're really carved uh, pathways in the shape of a perfect square almost. And inside of them, they discovered tons of mica. Now, mica is a technological purpose, uh, is technologically used for the purpose of insulation in modern times. So they found tons of insulation underneath this pyramidal structure here at Teotihuacan. Um, that connected the pyramids together and all the structures together. Uh, and to me, it lends to me evidence that there may have been some type of electricity flowing through this underground tunnel system. Those tunnels, the way that they're cut so perfectly and geometrically shaped, to me, lends credibility to the fact that they may have been more technological. Yeah, I, I definitely you know? agree. It, yeah. You see that mica and you find... Um, that they were using that as like a technology means, not like we use it today. All those were used to focus energy or mm -hmm. use these as some kind of energy, some kind of a temple that would have a certain harmonic frequency. It, it's basically just lost technology that we're trying to figure out today and trying to yeah. wrap our heads around. But I want to just bring something up at the end of this that I think is, is pretty amazing is that those Atlantean warriors, those statues that, that, that are standing there in, in Tula, Mexico, Mm -hmm. um, probably another piece of evidence that I want to I want to bring up that I think is the, probably the biggest one of all that connects all of this. That probably the best piece of evidence of all is that that handbag design that you find in the Olmec, okay, and in those in those Atlantean warriors in Tula, in different locations in Mexico, okay, you see that handbag design. You find that handbag design also in South America. You find that handbag design all throughout um, Mesopotamia through um, all the ancient world and these ancient civilizations. Now, mm -hmm. in, in Gobekli Tepe, you found that you find those same handbags on the T-shaped um, pillars they have. So yeah. what is that, right? In the stage of yeah. time, I talked about that and I really laid that out. Mm 
and I showed some pictures and examples. In my personal opinion, I think that the handbags represented this passing along of knowledge and technology, where a, a bag is, 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 a, is a symbolic way to represent something that holds something, something that carries something to be passed on. So when you, when you have, and they show different groups of them too. And I think those all might have little meanings too, and how many of them they show next to each other. But the fact is that handbag design has been seen in each of these megalithic ancient civilization areas all over the world. And I yeah. think those are what link this influence of these ancestors that traveled around and gave them all that technology. The handbags are showing that they provided all of this sophistication and wisdom and they passed it on to them and then created all these grand civilizations and then they were destroyed. And now of course, we're trying to put those pieces back together today. Right, Billy? Yeah, the handbags are definitely uh, one of my biggest posts that I've you know I've made many times over and over. I repost. What do, you, what do you think about them? I want to get your what are your thoughts too. That's a very interesting concept you came up with—the passing on of knowledge. Uh, I made a video tools and like sophistication and all that. Yeah, yeah, I made a I, yeah exactly. I made a a, a video with uh, Thomas uh, Jensen uh, out of um, Denmark a few years back about the bags where. Because I was just one day I was looking at um, some old NASA footage and I was trying to just analyze this whole moon thing and the launches and everything else. And I saw the astronauts come out with the bags, the handbags. They were life support bags. And so I started going, wait a minute. So I've gone from, I went from the Mercury, Apollo, I kept going forward all the way to the STS missions. You know, no matter what mission I went to, I saw that they were coming out with these handbags that were connected to a tube that were connected to their spacesuit as they climbed up uh, into the uh, launch tower. Like like Laura Bacal, right? Yeah, like Laura Bacal. That so, image that shows yeah. an M of the Mayan site. Yeah, exactly. So I sort of saying maybe it's a possibility. I mean, we don't know. We're all speculating here. But it's a possibility that those these bags could be life support bags, uh, you know, adding credence to the fact that these beings were getting in ships and taking off a lot uh, or and flying around the planet as well, or maybe needing acclimation to the atmosphere or whatever. I don't know, but... Uh, your your theory also is very very interesting, and it's possible that it could be a little bit of both. It could be technology combined with knowledge and wisdom. Uh, but the thing, the one thing that we do have in common is the fact that they've been found all over the entire planet. And they're like they're like a signature, right? They're like a signature of those those uh, call them whiz, wisdom bringers, influencers mm -hmm. of the past, right? That's right. It links the whole world together, and it proves that they were a global civilization. And, you know, there's no more question. You, you can't question it at this point when you find those bags literally have been found on um, little artifacts all over the world. Yeah, so it, sh it, it basically, it gives us the idea of, okay, so you find this megalithic precise building, there's, there's one, so okay, that, so that's probably a lost civilization. And then you find the handbags, you can, you, you put both of those pieces together mm -hmm. and you get, you have a blueprint to then follow around the world and try to figure things out. Um, and I and I want to. I just want to I want to say that um, it's really an honor to be able to work with you on this, Billy, because you and I have such similar research um, areas that we've studied, and and the, and the the concepts and the hypothesis that we've come up with is so similar that mm -hmm. it's it's almost uncanny, actually, when you say. Yeah, I know. I, I I mean, it really is. It's it's incredible, man. It's like we're kindred spirits. We've been researching along the same path. Uh, even separately, and when we come together, I get confirmation from you, and you get confirmation from me. So it's really good to interact like this because I'm like, wow, you know. So the path that I was researching, because you know, researching, it's not an easy thing. Um, a lot of people will just do a couple of Google searches, but that's not what we do. <laughs> they have no idea. We spend countless hours, man, 
through texts and tablets and PDF files and, and everything else and, you know, uh, and trying to piece together this puzzle so yeah. that we paint a picture for people to look at. Not that it's the exact correct picture, but it's as close to the best that we can do to help you get an idea of what, what really happened back then. And uh, it takes us a lot of time, hours, away from family, away from friends, sacrificing, uh, you know, events and so forth and so on to be able to write books and put this kind of information and content out. It's not something that's very easy to do. So, um, you know, I respect you, man. I, I really love your work. I, I'm just happy that I was able to meet you in this lifetime and to be able to share some wisdom with you, man. I love that. Thank you, Billy. That's beautiful. It's, it's, it's an honor to meet you in this lifetime, too. Um, and, and again, it's, it's an honor to be considered next to your book as well. Um, you're a very well-versed person who is, and like you said, we both spend a considerable amount of time trying to piece all this together and review it. Sometimes you can go great amounts of time without finding another one of those little little keys that you're looking for. Then all of a sudden, maybe some passage of some translation connects to another, and boom, you can put all this together. And that's yeah. what this is all about. And like Billy said, we're not trying to say we have all the answers to what happened back then. But we, we're trying to present the evidence that exists for you, giving the theories based on what we've looked at, and then you decide for yourself what's real and what happened back then, because that's the most important thing of all. It's always just a breadcrumb trail where the individual has to be an objective observer of history at all times and try to figure out what the truth is, truth is for themselves, because we're all going to come to slightly different understandings of what occurred back then. And I just want to, um, I just want to end out with a couple little updates here that um that we're billy and i are planning on doing um more stuff in the future like this if you guys like it so please let us know if this is something okay, we enjoy and i just wanted to give a little update Love on uh, what i've been working great. on thank too, you so much i didn't get a chance to but i just wanted to point out that so i spent uh, about a, the last week based on some of the feedback i ended up putting in um sub chapters in the entire book and billy's book was one of the inspirations behind that i wanted to help organize the, the information a lot better so I went through and did um, a rather large update recently. So for those interested, check that out. Um, that's that's out now. Um, and I'm, I'm hoping that we can try to do something with like a speaking presentation in the future um, coming up, Billy, if we can. Yeah, that'd be great. That would, that would be fantastic. We have to do that. We have to do it. We, we will. Let's get involved in one of those LA type of speaking events. Yeah. Where, and you and I can get in front of a, um, a PowerPoint and we can really lay out all this evidence and we can we can really put this stuff together i think absolutely and i definitely love, would love to have you on my show uh that i have on dame dash studios uh, billy carson gotta get you on the show yeah that would be awesome so um billy i just i'm gonna give closing closing thoughts and i want to give you a couple closing thoughts but thanks so much for everyone that's that supports uh, my work and billy's work um we really work hard to try to bring these secrets back out but really we also the reason we do this is because we really care about this information and we care about the future of where humanity goes. And that's the driving um, force behind why we really try to make sure we can preserve this legacy of the past. So Billy, it's been a really great discussion with you, my friend. Absolutely, man. Same here. I appreciate it, man. You know, we're just here to uh, literally serve mankind. We're really of service. And I think that's going to create a lot of positive karma. It has created a lot of positive karma for us, which allows us to continue to do what we do because uh, to be able to go down the path that we're on, it's not an easy path. And it requires a lot of things to fall in line in your life to be able to allow us to do this kind of research and work. Because the, t the average person just can't do it. There's a lot of things going on. We understand family, kids, work. I mean, we, not that we don't have that stuff, but an alignment has allowed us to be able to 
accomplish these goals and missions to help mankind. And I really just want to I thank the universe. and I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks so much, Billy. It's been a great discussion. Until next time, my friend. All right, man. See you later. So down with this. Thanks for 57k. Yeah, it's freaking great. Are you guys still there? Yes, you are. Hello, darlings. Hello, how are you? Obviously, you're still alive. You survived Trump virus. Congratulations. I, I would do a, a little comedy on that, but I've been, uh, it's view only. So, anyway, what other awesome stuff do you have for us, Trista? That was freaking great. Let's see, Forbidden Rants. Yes, we landed on the moon. Yes, we lied about it. Okay, this sounds good. What if you could follow more, proven more day trading future strategies and make it for all of your past trading losses? mind stuff from Billy Carson. Bad HG. <laughs> That'd be a good name for a production studio. Bad HG. 
within milliseconds before they even can take an opportunity to even digest it themselves. And so I really want to take some time today to go through this blog with you. We're actually going to go to the blog. I'm going to show it right here on this video. And we're going to walk through this whole thing, literally, word by word, image by image. And we're going to cover this content today on the Forbidden Rant. All right, let's get into this, guys. I'm going to share my screen now. And we're going to go to the window with the blog. Share. Has inflation got you feeling your money is slowly wasting away? Well, Kinesis Money is here to help. With the Kinesis Money platform, you can protect your wealth by spending physical gold, not paper money. That okay. Let me open up that blog. So this is the Forbidden blog. You can go to ForbiddenKnowledge.com forward slash blog, B-L-O-G. And there's a lot of blogs in here. There's literally probably a few hundred blog articles that have been written. This one I wrote March 27th. I believe that was 2019 uh, on this particular article. It says, yes, we went to the moon and yes, we lied about it. So let's get right into it, guys. One of the largest and oldest conspiracy theories that can be traced back to the NASA Apollo moon missions that occurred between 1961 and 1975 is the conspiracy which is fueled by several hot topics, which I will debunk in this article. Okay, let's start with the first one. Below is a fake image. That has gone viral online many, many times, by the way. This image is claimed to have been taken from a Hollywood studio and supposedly proves that the crew took a fake picture of themselves on the moon.
hoaxes are looking to deceive eager truth seekers with badly photoshopped images that could easily be debunked with a little bit of research. The hoaxers know that the majority of people are lazy and will not check anything. And that's a fact. Let's take a look at this image. This is a famous image. Boy, this has been going around for so long. You see uh, the, the Apollo mission uh, astronauts here doing a training mission. And you see them standing on the ground in what looks to be the moon, but there's no helmets on. Oh, my God, they got no helmets, guys. This is in the Hollywood studio. Look at this. Not exactly. Let's have a look. That's why I put underneath this photo, the conscious community has been overrun by hoaxers and pranksters 